Good morning, church. My name is Nick Barrett. I am your new associate pastor of Congregational Life, and I officially finished my first week, and I'm still here. So thank you. (laughs) I'm teasing. I'm so happy to be here, though. And um, as I said last week, uh, we really want to get to know you, so please reach out. Um, It would be great to be able to spend some time with you, fellowship with you, uh, so you can get a hold of me. Just send me an email, and hopefully we can get together. Would you stand for our scripture reading this morning? We're going to be looking at two passages of scripture, one from the prophet Zechariah and the other from the Gospel of Luke. So we'll begin with our Old Testament reading from Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Now hear God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, Your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In our New Testament reading from the Gospel of Luke 19, 29 through 40. When he, Jesus, had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there tied a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, People kept spreading their cloaks on the ground. He was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the disciples in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of God. You may be seated. There are, I think, two conditions or states of mind that are perhaps most deadly to the Christian life. The one is what I would call spiritual amnesia. And the second I would call theological consternation. Spiritual amnesia is when we forget either by hardship or affliction or time past, we forget 
the faithfulness of God in his presence in our lives, we forget. Spiritual amnesia. The second is theological consternation. This is when we don't like particularly very much what God is doing. God is beginning to transform us or transform something we're a part of or make changes and we don't like it. Spiritual amnesia, theological consternation. It really makes sense, actually, that we would struggle with these two things. We're human beings. We are broken. It makes sense. But I think it's lethal if we get stuck in these two states of mind. Amber Ginter, who is a Christian author and teacher, writes about spiritual amnesia, and she says this, in Exodus 33, when God had recently delivered Israel from the Egyptians and Pharaoh, there was deliverance. And God was seeking to make a covenant with them, and the people quickly began to fall apart because they could not immediately perceive what God was doing and how God was fulfilling his promises in front of them. And so, Ginter says, they begin to blame Moses and God for every bump in the road. And she says, it's startling, isn't it? It's startling to see how a group of people could with one breath blame God and then with the other pray to him for deliverance. Sound familiar? Spiritual amnesia might sound like this. Okay, yes, God, I, I know that you did some good things for me back there in that place in that time. I think. In my mind, maybe? Am I making that up? Did that actually happen? Was that really you? Yes. Uh, I hope it was. I think it was. I'm not sure it was. Theological consternation I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I like the way that you are interacting with me or my family or the fact that I have this affliction. I think this might be your fault. Or, you know, I think I see really clearly, God, what you're doing, but all those other people, I don't think they see it. These two states of mind, I think, were a problem for Israel all the way from exodus to exile and beyond. In the book of Zechariah, we are looking at a moment of the post-exilic state of Israel when they have come out of exile, they have returned to the land, and they are now beginning to rebuild the city and the temple. And... The process was slow. 
and it wasn't going exactly the way that many of them hoped it would. There was frustration with the leaders, the priests, and the laborers, and people were getting, beginning to become impatient, and they were wondering and beginning to question the validity of God's promises. Would God really fulfill the promises of restoration that he had given our forefathers and that he had given the generation that began in exile? I mean, think about it. 70 years has passed. That's an entire generation. And now a new generation is here, and they're wondering, is it really going to happen? It's taking a little too long. And so Zechariah, the prophet, begins to respond to this concern, to these questions, the questioning of the validity of God's promises with a mixture of different prophetic oracles and decrees and visions, and it's a very complex book if you've tried to read through it. It's, it's, it's mixed of different genres almost. I mean, there are scrolls and flying people and all kinds of interesting imagery. It's very powerful. And Zechariah is using all of these different mixed images and decrees and oracles so that he might remind the people of God's faithfulness and past credibility. He is trying to remedy their spiritual amnesia and their theological consternation. And so really the first nine chapters of the book paint a whole picture, a single picture, and it's really this. The picture is that Yahweh will deal with Israel's external enemies or forces of opposition. Yahweh is saying, I will deal with that. The things that are outside of you, that are beyond you, that you cannot control, I'm going to deal with those things. Don't worry. And also he's saying, and because I love you and you are my people and I am passionate for you, I am going to rebuild and enlarge and then exalt you as a people. And not only that, but then I am going to come and dwell in your midst and the glory of God will burst forth and be radiant from inside of you out into the nations. Your pagan neighbors will even begin to sense that glory and that beauty and that power and they will be drawn to you and eventually many of them will become my people. And so the question then is when will this change happen and what will it be like? And so to address this question in chapter 9, Zechariah does something very prophet-like. He shifts the frame of reference to an event at an undefined point in time. And he describes a moment when Israel's true king will come in to establish his reign and rule amidst the people. And he says, shout, rejoice, Lo, your king comes to you. Lo, he nay in Hebrew, behold, it means, or actually more specifically in a better translation for he nay, lo, behold, is pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to what God is doing in front of you, not what you think God should be doing in front of you. 
Israel has a distraction problem. Very much like the kind of distraction problem that the poet T.S. Eliot described, T.S. Eliot describes in the wasteland when he says, we are distracted from distraction by distraction. And that is so true of our lives, isn't it, right now? In this epidemic moment of distraction with AI and with the culture up in just all sorts of turmoil and conflict and, of course, wars all over the world. And we've got just so much drama and, 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 and brutality unfolding around us. And all of that emits so many good and beautiful things at the same time. I and mean, we live in this very tense kind of moment. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to become impatient. It's easily easy to develop amnesia and then consternation in the middle of it, especially towards God. And so Zechariah says, pay attention because the king, the true king who is coming, he is not going to be like what you think. And his restorative presence might not necessarily look and feel how you think it will. Now I want us to pause here about this coming of the king. And I want us to think about the tense and the direction of what is being stated here. First, Zechariah says, the king comes to you. The king comes to you. And in Hebrew, this word is in the imperfect tense, meaning it is a perpetual, ongoing thing. Yes, there will be a historical point in time when the king will come, but the king has come, will come, and is coming. It is a perpetual thing that is happening, that is being described here. The imperfect tense, the king is coming. The king is coming. And he is coming with victory and righteousness. And he has been saved in his affliction, it even says in a different translation. But he is coming with humility, which means gentleness and meekness. And he is coming with that kind of victory, that majesty, and yet that meekness at the same time into a broken and dilapidated and skeptical people. In other words, Zechariah, long before his time, is preaching the gospel. He's saying that God's restorative presence and work is a gift. And it's not going to happen because you went to God. Although there are times in Scripture where people run to God. They go up to the mountain, they find God, they chase God down. In some respect, that is true. But really, the larger picture is the story of a God who comes to a people. I mean, who was Abraham? Abraham had no idea who God was, and God came to him. What about Moses? Moses had committed a murder. He was on the run. And then long, long down the line, God comes to him and chooses him to go and to speak and to free the people. This is the God that chases people down. God comes to you. God comes to you. But he comes with humility. And he does not come to Israel in this moment. He is saying, Zechariah is saying, he is not coming because you have cleaned yourselves up and put yourselves together. No, it's just the opposite. He is coming because you're a mess. 
You're a mess, and God, the saving, rescuing God, needs to come into your mess and fix you because you can't do it. The king is coming to put them back together again. You know, over the last several years when I was working on my dissertation, which is a dreadful thing to do, I don't recommend it. (laughs) I used to go and and work in coffee shops because, let's be honest, the library is just, it's like being in prison, you know. Uh, At least for me it was. I needed to be around people, you know. And... And so I would go to coffee shops and I would, of course, I would have this big stack of books, you know, and you put it on your table and your cup of coffee and your writing. And so inevitably people see this stack of books and it's like St. Augustine and John Calvin and, you know, what is all that? What is this person doing? And so this, this guy approaches me and he goes, yeah, I've seen you in here before. What are you doing? I'm writing a paper, a long one. Oh, so you're, you know, a theology student. He kind of could intuit from the books. Yeah, so he tells me about his law practice, and, and we begin to see each other, and, and over the course of a year or two, we develop a, a friendship. And, you know, a lot of it was just small talk, but every now and then we would get into more serious conversation, and he would, you know, talk to me about the fact he had a marriage that fell apart, and his brother is dealing with alcoholism and almost died in a car accident, and his, his parents are estranged from each other, and, and, and them, and it's been difficult, you know, and so he's talking about these different things, and, and expressing really this kind of frustration of life. Why does life have to be like this, you know? And so we begin to talk about that, but also God. He grew up in the church, but he had left and has not come back, and I remember this one conversation we had, he shared with me why he just doesn't want to go to church. Because he said, he thinks, God is just this moral grump. I think he's more concerned with all the things that I I, I do wrong than with anything else. I feel like he's just kind of, you know, looking down with this scowl, distant, right? And that if I'm going to go back to church, there's just so much I got to do. I got to get cleaned up. I got to stop doing this. I got to figure out how I'm going to stop doing that. I've got to try to zip things up, you know, get a little bit more cleaned up. And I'm like, no, 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 man. That is the opposite of the gospel. That is the opposite of the truth of the good news. The truth of the good news is that you cannot fix yourself. You cannot clean yourself up. You have to be saved and rescued. You have to be given righteousness that comes from the outside. This is why Martin Luther, the German reformer, talked about the idea of alien righteousness. This is when God comes and gives himself to us in his death and resurrection. He gives us righteousness and he takes our sin and brokenness and puts it onto himself and gives us back new life and new creation. And that makes us right in a way that we cannot make ourselves right. And Luther said when he realized that, it was though the gates of paradise were open to him. That is the gospel. And Alex, my friend, said, that sounds too good to be true. And I said, because it is. 
It is too good to be true, and yet it is true. And this is what Zechariah, in a sense, before it happened, is preaching to the people. God is coming to clean you up because you're a mess. Now, I want us to notice what happens in the effect that follows after the king is said to have come into the people. What happens when the king comes in is surprising to me because I would think of a whole bunch of other things that I think might follow after the king comes in. But what's very clearly stated in verse 10 is that the king will cut off chariots, war horses, and battle bows. Right? The instruments of death and conflict get cut off. And so what really Zechariah is saying here is that this rule of this king will be totally different than others. Unlike others who rule with coercive power, this king will terminate war and conflict. And he will establish his reign and rule, and this is the part I love, he will establish his reign and rule with words of peace. When the Lord speaks, Everything changes. We heard in the hymn that we sang earlier, he formed the creatures from his word and then proclaimed them good. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be peace and there was peace. Let there be freedom and there was freedom. When God speaks, things change God wants to come in and wants to cut off the patterns of conflict and death that are separating the people from each other, that are keeping them stuck in this state of spiritual amnesia and theological consternation. And I wonder, what is God saying as he is continually coming into this church? God has come, God is here, and God is coming. What is God saying? What is the word of peace that God is saying to us, to you? What are the things that God is cutting off here? Now when we see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy in Luke 19, Israel was not really in a much better place than they were in exile, and after exile. They were still living in oppressed existence, except now this time under Roman rule, and Jerusalem was still considered a rebellious city. So some things had changed, and then some things had fallen back, and that's kind of the way it seems to go. The people's spiritual amnesia and theological consternation was alive and well, but none of that deters Jesus from coming into their mess. And this is a startling display of his majesty. Why? Because his coming in is not based on the pristine spiritual health of the people, but it's based on their illness, like it was before, as prophesied in Zechariah. You see, friends, this is the, the good news. In the ancient world, 
when a king would come into a city riding on a donkey with a crowd to celebrate that entry, it was not a symbol, it was not a moment where the king was trying to come in and claim kingship. It was not a moment when a king was trying to come in in hopes to assert his royalty, that the people would accept it. No. When a king would come in like this, the entry presupposes an already established victory. And so when Jesus entered Jerusalem that day, he was not coming in, even though most of the people in Jerusalem had no idea there was a crowd of people there celebrating. He was not coming in to try to assert what he did not yet have. He was not coming in to try and claim what he did not yet have. He came in already victorious. And when Jesus comes into our midst and into our lives, he comes in already victorious over your mess, already having conquered the brokenness in your life, already being king. Why? Because God has made it so. God has given him that status. And so when Jesus comes into your midst, it's not because he is asking permission. It's because God has willed it to be the case and he is there to set up his crucifixion and resurrection shop and to bring and unfold his restoration in our midst. That is what is happening when the king comes in. And so our job now, when the king continually comes in is to pay attention, to listen to the music that's been playing across the arc of eternity of God's restoration for us. Now finally, in our passage from Luke, I want us to notice three things that happen in the story when Jesus enters the city. There is first service, then there is worship, and then there is witness. And in this particular case, that order matters. Now, there's always a symbiotic relationship between these things, and you can see that all over Scripture. But in this particular story, in this moment, when the king perpetually comes in, it's service, then worship, then witness. I love the first part of this story, and for years I never understood what was happening here. But Jesus comes down to the Mount of Olives. He's about to enter the city, and he says to two of his disciples, hey, I need you to go and find this colt that has not been ridden on yet, and I need you to bring it here. And if the people who own it question you, just say, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. So they go, they find the colt, they began to untie it, and the owners asked, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. And so they take the colt. They borrow it. The Lord needs it. When I was in high school, I had decided that I was completely not, I was not interested in Christianity any longer. I walked away from the church and I, I uh, started playing rock and roll music. Not that those things are, 
Not that one causes the other or anything. It was just, in my case, that was the way it was. <laughs> I was in a punk band, uh, had a mohawk at one point. Hopefully you'll still want me to be here after I tell you this story. It's dyed it pink. Wore some studded belts. It was, it was lots of fun. I was in all these bands, you know, skateboarding, fighting against the authority and power that we thought was, you know, corrupting everything. And this youth pastor at the church that I went to was, was a really smart, anointed man. He saw that there were a whole bunch of, of kids in Denver, Colorado that were falling away and that they were getting involved in this music scene. And it was a good scene in some ways in the sense that there were a lot of kids who were kind of together from their experience in the church and they were looking for something where they could be together, but they didn't really feel comfortable being in the church because of the way they dress and the music they played and listened to and all the things going on in their lives. And so he approached the leadership of the church and he asked them, could I, could I have some, some funds to rent a warehouse on the other side of town and build a half pipe inside of it and a stage and uh, so that all of these young people in these bands and these skateboarders can come and just spend time there and play music and then maybe we can have some adults in the church who are interested in reaching out to them and can just spend time with them and just try to kind of give them the gospel, try to reintroduce them to Christianity. And surprisingly, this church said yes. And so when that happens, of course, you give it a really absurd name, like Tuesday night at your mom's, which is what he decided to call this thing. Okay. And so all of these bands would come and, and, um, and play and all these people. And there were like hundreds of young people that would come to this. And I remember going to this and interacting with friends and some adults, but there was this one couple that stood out to me. And it was this couple who probably, they were probably in their late 70s. And they wanted to volunteer at Tuesday night at your mom's. And so what they did is they brought with them a Snoopy snow cone maker. I think we have a picture of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe you've seen this. Snoopy snow cone maker. And this is what they thought they would offer. They would come and make snow cones for the punk kids. And so they stood at this little table and they had their bowl of ice. And this is not a very efficient way to make snow cones because you just put like two ice cubes in the top and then you push it down and you have to like hand grind it, and then it puts a little, you know, crushed ice into a cup, and then you put syrup on it. And so, but, but everybody loved it, and we were somehow mesmerized with these, like, why do we have this, like, grand, the grandparents here making snow cones? I mean, you know, and, and they were really friendly, interesting people, and, and they cared about us. And I remember, you know, maybe a year later or something like that, kind of seeing them sometimes praying with young people. Checking in, how are you doing? What's going on at home? How's, how's school? Things like this. And, and, and people began to know them. The Lord needs it. The Lord needs the Snoopy snow cone maker. It's small. It seems ridiculous. What is the Snoopy snow cone maker 
What is the cult? What is the thing that you have that the Lord needs right now? It might be something significant, a backyard. Maybe it's a minivan to help get people somewhere to an event. Maybe it's some skill that you have. Maybe it's, who knows? But there are things that, that, that we have that the Lord needs in order to, to facilitate the worship of his coming in to our midst. You know, sometimes I think when we think about the things we have, we, we tend to think, well, God doesn't need my stuff. I mean, God has everything. And that, that's true. God does own the cattle on 10,000 hills. Everything belongs to God. And yet Jesus wants to borrow a colt from someone else before his entry into the city. The Lord needs it. The second and third image really work together, which is that of worship and witness. The people begin to shout and praise, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they begin to lay down their cloaks on the road. That must have been a startling moment. In the ancient Near East, when kings in other countries would come in, it wasn't cloaks that people would lay down, it was bodies. And you can see inscriptions of this in other areas in the ancient Near East, humans would be laid on the road. But here, a different kind of king, humble, gentle, meek, but majestic at the same time is coming into their midst and they're laying down their cloaks. And you know, worship really in this respect has two sides to it. And on the one hand, there's something transcendent and powerful and beautiful. They are paying honor and reverence to the one who is king and yet there is also something dangerous going on here. It is a prophetic act to worship because it is saying to the powers in the world outside of us, you are not king. You are not king. It's seditious in the ancient world. And so it's a dangerous and a transcendent act at the same time. And, and here's really the thing I want us to see. Worship is not only about giving praise and honor to God. It is definitely that, absolutely. But it is also about paying attention to and gazing upon the startling majesty of the one who comes to dwell in our midst, as was promised to Israel and Zechariah. In other words, it is through our attention, through our paying attention to him, that we become burning, radiant images of God through which God shines out his beauty and glory and truth into the world. And that is a form of witness because as we pay attention to the one who comes in and that light shines out, others begin to pay attention to that light. And so worship is a form of witness. When we pay attention to the Lord of glory that is coming into our midst, we might be as we saw in the psalm, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, 
We were like those who dream, and then our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. The startling majesty is coming. It has come, and it will come again. This is the king who builds us. Amen.